7.06, it's Monday night, you know where we are. It's time for Ira on Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel. Mike and Sean will be chiming in as well. Huge show on tap for you tonight, but before we even get to where Ira is, because he's not in studio, and you'll be very interested to hear the story of what's been going on with him, we do have to bring in our good friend, uh, Mike Iavarone, former owner of Big Brown, to talk about the Belmont in just one second. Ira, though, you're here. Let's get Mike ready to go. Ira, how are you? I'm doing great. I am so pumped. We are in the middle of the NBA Finals, the Stanley Cup Finals, Belmont coming up this week. I mean, if the best part of the meal is the dessert, we are having the apple pie, the pumpkin pie, the cherry pie, and all the ice cream. I'm ready. Let's this go. Is, this I'm is the so creme excited. de la creme, Ira, and I'm glad you're as excited as we are for the show. Uh, Mike Iavarone, good friend of Ira on Sports. He knows everything about the world of horse racing, and he's also had some superstars in his past. We're going to talk about a superstar right now. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I know your time's precious. That's why we have to get right into this. The question that's on everyone's mind, Mike, does Justify have what it takes to win the Triple Crown? Well, I certainly think he has what it takes, but this is not going to be easy one. I think of all the three races, I think this is going to be his biggest challenge, and I think, I think if there's ever a chance for him to get beat, it's, it's this one. And that's what my next question is. Who do you think is the biggest threat to take Justify down? You know, looking at the field, a lot of Kentucky Derby transfers usually come back ready for the Belmont after skipping the Preakness. We're not seeing all that many from that original field come over. Who do you think could knock him off? Well, here's what I think. I don't think there's a horse in the race that's better than him. I think he's far and above the best horse in the field. And I don't think it's any horse that's going to beat him. I think it's the triple crown that's going to inevitably undo him. I think it's it's a matter of three races short period of time on a pretty deep mile-and-a-half track, and I, I just didn't like the way he finished up in the Preakness, and I think there is going to be a pace factor in this Belmont that is going to be problematic for him. We're going to talk about pace in just a second, but so maybe, Mike, you're in the same camp as me that I really think Justify gave it everything in the Preakness. You know, he did, but I also think he had a very good trip. I know they went quick early, uh, but he was, you know, stalking the pace on the outside. He did not get any mud in his face, came back clean, and I just did not like the way he finished shortening up to a mile and three sixteenths, now stretching out to a mile and a half. I, I do think, again, he's the best horse in the race, but I just do not like the way he finished in the Preakness, and I, I think that's going to be a problem in the Belmont. We're speaking with Mike Iavarone. This is Ira on Sports. We're discussing the Belmont Stakes, which happens this Saturday. Does Justify have what it takes to take down a Triple Crown? The pace is going to be super important in this race, and I think that's the way it's set up. Baffert's got multiple horses in this. Do you think that that's going to affect how the pace is played, and what do you think the pace will actually be? Well, I think this is a very strange dynamic, and I'll tell you why. It's, there's a horse in this race, Noble Indy, yeah. Uh, that is co-owned by Windstar, who also co-owns Justified. And I believe that he owns his horse in partnership with Mike Rapoli, who also owns Vino Rosso. So I, I believe that Noble Indy is going to be sent, and I believe Vino Rosso is going to come from off the pace. And I believe Baffert also is going to use Restoring Hope on the pace. And I think this is the first time that Justify will end up having to get a trip without being second on the outside. I think this is the first time he's going to be behind horses. And this is a whole different dynamic, I think, that's coming into this, and I don't think they're going to allow him to have the same trip he had in the, in the Preakness and in the Derby. Yeah, Mikey Iverone is as big of an expert in this as anybody in the country, even me as kind of a novice. I realize there's a really weird dynamic here. And, like, do you 
send Noble Indy. You don't want to wear out, justify. There's just so much going on, Mike, that from the betting point of view, and we're going to talk about how to make money on this in just a minute, it's kind of a little bit diluted for me. I just think the, the angle with Noble Indy is a little bit confusing to me, and I can't think that this is what Winstar wanted to do. I think it's a situation where the horse is co-owned uh, by Mike Rapoli, who also owns Vino Rosso, and Todd Pletcher trains Noble Indy. So I just don't think there was a situation there where maybe Winstar had the final call. And I, I think this horse inevitably could be the problem. I think if Restoring Hope does what everybody expects and he goes, I think Noble Indy is probably going to be in the position that that Justify would likely want to be. And I think that if Justify wants that position, he's going to have to go real fast, real early. And I think that's just going to set up a you know a mid-pack kind of closer. And I think the interesting horse to me is is a horse called Free Drop Billy, who I yeah. think is going to be a heck of a long price. And I think he might be the horse that sits in that second tier that could make the first run. And, uh, you know, I know everybody is on Mott's horse, but... I'm just not so sure a horse that's eligible for one other is going to come back into the Belmont Stakes. But I do think the race is going to set up for that mid to late closing style. 7 to 12, it's Ira on Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel. Ira is away, and he's been up to a whole lot. We'll catch up with him in just one second. But Ira, what do you have for Mike? Mike, I just the question I have is on Hofburg. I mean, considering that the its sire is Sir Tappet, and uh, um, and it's three of the flat four Belmont winners have been uh, Sir Tappet's uh, uh, prodigy. I mean, how does Hofburg look? I mean, is it? I mean, there's so many people that just look at bloodlines and say, okay, that is, that is going to win. What do you think about Hofburg in terms of? You know, he finished seventh in the Derby, ran an okay race, but just because his uh, sire is who he is, that he should have these great odds. You know, I, I kind of don't like betting these these horses out of the Whisper horses, and uh, you know, he's probably a horse that should be fifteen to one. That'll probably be something like six or seven to one. I think he'll probably be overplayed, and I, I just kind of stay away from those horses by nature. He's eligible for one other uh, allowance race, so I mean, he hasn't beaten stakes horses yet, and I think people are expecting him to move forward and, and really relish a mile and a half. But I don't think there's a three-year-old on the planet that relishes a mile and a half. So I, I, I'm not going to use him. Uh, I, I'm going to look more towards horses that have proven themselves against better quality. And, and I think, uh, you know, there are horses in there, Vino Rosso and Free Job Billy. And, of course, if Justify is able to work himself out a trip, you know, obviously he's the horse to beat. But you, you just can't bet this horse at 4-5. to five. I, I probably think he's, in my eyes, 8-5 to five or 2-1. to one. Uh, you know, that that's value for me. But, but four to five, three to five, that kind of thing is not value on Justify, especially off the break. I think the betting public... But Mike, the question... The qu- Go ahead, I. Uh, Mike, the question I have, I have is, in, in, when Big Brown ran, I mean, it was pulled up uh, because, it, you know, it felt like it was a mile-and-a-half race. He didn't really have it in him. You can explain more about what happened at the Belmont. But the idea is, if Justify... If, will, the, will the jockey pull just, will, if, if Justify is not running a good race, will the jockey try to have it finish in the top three? Is it going to be like a horse that's going to be, I mean, is there a chance it won't be in the muddy because it's just going to be pulled up there? I'm not saying it's going to just pull up and not run, but will it run out full if it's not really having its best race? And should it be in if you're playing uh, in your, your top three horses, would Justify always have to be in the top three? Okay, well, first off, the situation with Big Brown, it, it took us a while to, to really find out what happened. Thank God we were able to. Uh, there were some cameras that got some, some good pictures that surfaced about a month after the race. 
that showed when he had come out of the gate, uh, the horse behind him had stumbled and stepped on his back on his back shoe and separated his back shoe. And there was a nail that had dislodged on the back side of the shoe that was catching him in his soft bearing of his frog down the back stretch. And that shoe ended up breaking off and separating. So we never really saw that, that he was getting uh, stabbed by that hot nail until a month later. And the sore mode pretty much the whole way felt that something wasn't right, but he couldn't really put his finger on it. And that was the reason why he had taken the horse up. As far as Mike Smith and Justify, if he's sound and he's still running, he's, there's no reason for Saki to take a horse up, especially in a betting race. And if you're going to take a shot and bet against him and keep him out of the triple or supers, you just have to think that that would happen only if he got really caught up in a, in a speed duel early in the race. And, you know, at that, at that point, if he should be passed at the three-hits pole or something, he could fade. But, uh, you know, that's the risk that you take. But if you're going to get paid, that's probably a good <laughs> move to try to take a shot and keep him out. 715, it's Ira on oh. Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Uh, Mike Balsamo, Sean LeGregor here as well. We're, just, we're talking with Mike Iavarone, owner of Big Brown, about the Belmont and Justify. Triple crown chances, how do we make money? Ira, what else you got? No, I guess the other question would be, if the, if the people saw Bravazzo and, and Tenfold coming strong in the Preakness, and some people might extrapolate to say, well, if the race was longer, both those horses would have finished one and two. I mean, do you, how much do you take from the fact that those two horses were running so well at the end of the Preakness? Honestly, I think the race was a phony race. I, I, I think not one of those horses ran a, a, a Preakness winning race. The, you know, the speed figures didn't come back great. And I think the most interesting part about it is the horse that had the toughest trip was Good Magic, who set the, the pace from the inside, basically pressed up against the rail the entire way. And usually when horses are, are pinned down with a really good horse alongside of them, when they get past at the top of the stretch, they kind of fold the tent and, and pretty much give up. He, I think he only got beat about a length and a half. And that kind of tells me that even though Bravazzo looked like he was really coming home, I don't think that Justify and Good Magic were really finishing well. And and I think the race, to me, comes off a little bit phony, and I just don't think Bravazzo is going gonna, is gonna to run this race that everybody's expecting. I just don't think so. I'm in the same camp. Okay, thanks, thanks, Michael. I'm in the same camp as you. I, I, I'm not seeing it from Bravazzo. The only thing that's going to beat Justify, I think, is the, the distance and the literally just the workload and you know this horse has never lost a race so there's it's hard to bet against him but i think you're right mike if you can get two to one here i think that's a good bet and i might even stay away from it so that's what i'm gonna ask you mike you know i hit the superfecta i bet 34 dollars to win 38 on a 10 cent super i would justify all all i won four dollars but just how you knew it was going to go. So my question to you is, how are you going to bet the Belmont to actually make money? Well, that approach, as far as taking one horse and putting everybody underneath that one horse, is an excellent approach with a long shot on top. That's really the right way to do that. If you have the favorite, you put everybody else underneath you. Odds are, even if you win, you're not going to make a heck of a lot of money. My approach has always been quite the opposite. Is If I really like a horse that can beat the favorite, I will put that horse on top and I will put everybody else underneath him hoping that if he wins and the favorite doesn't run in the super you're talking about huge money 
So uh, I, I think I'm going to try to break this race down into maybe finding one horse. And the horse that I'm, I'm just itching at, which I think is going to be, you know, maybe 30, 35 to 1, is Free Drop Billy. I just have the suspicion that Dale Romans just knows how to get a horse ready for a mile-and-a-half race. And, and I think this horse has a reasonable enough shot to sit in that second tier and make one run. And if he wins and justified comes out of the money or out of the top four, you're talking about, you know, telephone numbers. Telephone numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the kind of inside analysis you can only get from Ira on sports here on uh, 95.9, the True Oldies Channel, 719. Again, we're speaking with Mike Iavarone, uh, owner of Big Brown. Before I let you go, let's say Justify wins. How do you compare Justify? And I know it's impossible to American Pharaoh, the most recent Triple Crown winner. Well, first off, I think the part that would be so disappointing for me is I like Justify when everybody else didn't even know the name Justify. You're right. I was in Las Vegas, and I was in Las Vegas, and I couldn't even get a line on him because I would think he was probably 150 or 200 to win to win the Triple Crown at that point. Maybe even to win the Kentucky Derby. I don't know. Uh, but if if he should win, I, I think. I, I don't feel he's American Pharaoh just because I just think American Pharaoh is just, just so dominant. I don't feel like Justify's races have been dominant, especially the Preakness. Uh, if he should dominate the Belmont, I, I think he would move up a notch in my eyes, but I would have to see how some of these other horses do after they're done. Like, for example, uh, Frosted, who ran second to American Pharaoh, proved to be a tremendous horse. He won the Metropolitan Mile, ran 120 buyer figure. American Pharaoh proved his merit because the horses that were underneath him and behind him proved to be really good horses. I don't know if there's a really good horse, aside from Justify, that exists in this, trip, in this three-year-old group. And I know everybody was big on him before. I never was big on the group, but I, I, I'm still not big on the group. Mike, you, you couldn't have said it better than I could have. That was just amazing analysis, exactly what I'm thinking. I'm glad that someone who's in the industry backs me up. You're right. Frosted went on to um, be amazing overseas as well, I believe. So there was some competition. I don't know if we see it in this crop of three-year-olds, but he is Mike Iavarone, former owner of Big Brown. Talking about the Belmont here on Iron Sports. Mike, thank you so much. You got it. Take care, guys. 721, this is Iron Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel. So you've been hearing Ira on the phone. That's because you probably racked up more frequent flyer miles in the last couple of weeks than anybody on the planet. Ira, where you been? I've been to I, actually we did our show last Monday Memorial Day weekend, and I did the show on that. And I was flying. I flew from Boston, so I saw Game Seven in Boston, and then I was the next night in Game Seven in Houston. And I want to tell you something: a lot of the, the networks cover it differently, and reporters covered it. And I was on a plane from Boston to Houston, and I didn't see any reporters or anybody on that plane. I don't know how many people were actually at both games. So I was at both those games, and then I went to the five, game one on Thursday night in Golden State in Oakland, and then I went last night, Sunday night, to the game two. So I've been to two games in, the, in about a week. I've been to two game sevens and games one and two of the NBA Finals. So it's been pretty exciting. It's, it's been an amazing run. Do you want to give us a little rundown? I don't think a lot of people have been to Toyota Center or Oracle or TD Garden. What are some of the differences or similarities you've seen in the stadiums? Well, I want to say the thing. As someone, you know, we're broadcasting in West Palm Beach, and people have an op- the opportunity to go to the American Airlines Arena, appreciate it. That arena is awesome. It's great compared to these other arenas. TD Garden, I was at TD Garden a couple of years ago. 
I don't remember being there, but this time there's construction all around it. You don't even feel like you're walking into an arena. You feel like you're walking into the, the subway station. And at one point when I was going through a turnstile, I was like, am I going to the arena or I'm getting on a subway? And it was like, it was so weird. The, the ceilings are low. When you get to the concourses, it reminds me of a high school, an old high school, you know, with the lockers and there was no, the concession stands were bad. And then you go into the arena itself and it's very dark. They have banners on the ceiling, the parquet floor, but it just doesn't look like a nice arena. The seats are dark. The arena's dark. It's just not a great environment. And then the seats, there's no leg room at all. I mean, I, mean, I was sitting in the sixth row, and I could even, you could not sit down and have my legs, my knees were in my face. There's, it, it's a horrendous stadium. Toyota Center, though, it's it's in, and also around Boston Garden, there's not a lot to do. Like in Cleveland, I said, there's a lot to go in. There's bars and restaurants. You have to walk a very far to after the garden to go actually hang around with the bars. It's more office buildings, it seems like. Toyota Center, the same things. It's downtown, and there are some great bars, but you still have to walk like a half a mile one way to get to them. But around the arena, there's nothing. There's just vacant lots and some parking lots. And the arena, though, it's very nice. It has good concourses, lots of food, and the fans, it's almost like a college atmosphere. They're all dressed in red. They were really screaming loud. They're professional fans. They're into the game. They love their Rockets. They love their team, and uh, it's, a, it's a super environment to watch a game. Now, Oracle in Oakland, that arena is a complete dump. I mean, there are <laughs> junior high school arenas that are, that are better than that. That are that are that are better than that are better than this arena. It is they're tearing it down, and they're I don't know if they're tearing it down, but they're building a new arena. That will be done in two years in San Francisco. It's going to be like the state of the art arena, the best arena in the world. But for the time being, they have to play an Oracle, and you you walk in there. They have this gold uh, carpet you have to walk on to get into the stadium that now is all brown and dirty. Um, the concourses are maybe everyone you can't if you want to try to walk around the arena during the game you'll never get there. Don't even think about going to the bathroom at all. The bathroom lines are out the, the windows. The arena inside it's nice. The visibility is good at the lower bowl. The upper bowls they've had so many accidents of people falling and whatever. They have railings and plexiglass everywhere. So everybody who sits up high can't see any thing during the game but so i would say that arena but then around the arena there's absolutely nothing like if you walk out of oracle uh you're going nowhere like i think the nearest place to get food would be two miles away so you're not there's not that type of you leave the arena and go into this you're getting in a parking lot it's right next to the oakland coliseum but it's still that environment it's very loud the ceiling is low so it's a very low, low ceiling. So the acoustics are tremendous. So when the fans are screaming and yelling and Curry's draining his shots, that is an exciting place to be in. So, but the American Airlines Arena in Miami is so by far better than those three arenas. And it's, 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 it's just a jewel after going to those, those places. Ira, before we get into the actual, you know, uh, breaking down, Game 7 of that Warriors and Houston series, which is amazing. You told me an interesting story earlier about the ticket pricing. Compared to what you've you know seen yeah. maybe in New York. Well, I think okay, this is it. the Boston prices for Game Seven were ridiculously high. That was a high ticket, and it's in Boston. But in Houston, I didn't think the prices were that high. I think the fans were almost thinking they're going to lose. I didn't see the prices as that. You know, they were just you know much. They were probably one third what the prices were in Boston. And then one of the things you do on a ticket is you look on, the, they use flash seats and you have to go and there's an outside the club. So if you sit on a corner, if you're not in the club, if you're in the section next to the club section, that's actually a fairly good deal because you can get a good visibility of a game. Because I don't want like, 
I have a pet peeve. There's a lot of pet peeves I have, and one is I hate thundersticks. So I don't want to sit behind a basket. I don't want people having the thundersticks in my face. And I can't see if you sit behind the basket. The baskets now have so many cameras, and there's everything behind it. You can't see, the, you know, the, the, the court at all. So you have to sit. You try to sit in the corner or to the side if you're lucky enough. But then I was shocked at Oracle. For game one, the tickets, I sat in a seat that if you went to Master Garden for a normal regular season game against the Sacramento Kings, that's what you would pay for. I mean, it was, uh, the prices were, I, I mean, online, there were 5,000 tickets available the day of the game. The rumor Crazy. is that the, ticket, the game didn't even, was not even a sellout because, but they were, the pricing was so high, but there was no interest at all. But then on Sunday night's game, it was back to normal, back to super expensive. I was, you know, fight, waited three hours looking, refreshing my page and had to sit in a corner to get a seat. But Thursday night's game was the cheapest ticket I could imagine for, I've ever, for all the NBA Finals games I've been to, might have been the cheapest NBA Finals game I've ever been to. And that's why I sat in a great seat for a below market base price. I don't know why nobody went to the game on Thursday night. 727, it's Ira on Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Mike and Sean, we're here as well. Coach Bob Patton, two-time World Basketball League champion, joins us in about eight minutes. Let's get into the action, though. Ira, that was a great series that we saw in the West, and everyone kind of knew that the Western Conference Finals was going to be possibly better than the finals themselves. So why don't we talk about that? Game 7 and just that entire series really was phenomenal. It was a great series because you had actually the two really close games besides what we had at Game 1 of the NBA Finals. I think what happened in Game 7 was that there was a wish, was, was Chris Paul going to play? And I got to the stadium really early, and I'm watching, and every time you, there was rumors, Paul's coming out, he's going to warm up, he's not warming out. But when Paul didn't play, I think those Houston Rocket fans were very deflated. Like They felt like it's going to be really hard to beat them. But they jumped out to a lead. They were up by 11. People, they look at the final score, and they say, oh, they lost by 10, it wasn't that close. It was close. They were up by 11 at halftime. They were killing them on the boards. Golden State did not play well. And even Steve Kerr said after the first quarter, it was the worst quarter we played all year. But then in that third quarter, I mean, that third quarter for the, uh, for the Warriors is their, like, just amazing time. I was doing, I read an article in the New York Times about it and how they have coaches that just prepare for their locker room talks and what video. Now, unlike the NFL, they can actually show video in the locker room. So they show the video. They have a whole plan in place. Everything is laid out. They've outscored their opponents by 130 points in the third quarter it's just and there no one else is even close to that and so they outscored the rockets 35 to 13 uh curry was draining threes durant draining threes i mean it was absolutely and that just they won in the third quarter by the fourth quarter it was over uh but the key to that game was definitely i mean durant was 11 for 21 34 points he had a great game seven curry had 27 points seven for 15 on threes and they um, Bell came off the bench and had five rebounds, three assists, but really the Rockets lost the game. Ariza was 0 for 12, 0 for 9 from three. Harden was 12 for 29, 2 for 13 from three. Gordon was 2 for 12 from three. They just kept shooting threes. They missed 27 three-point shots in a row. They were 7 for 44 from the game. Um, They shot 13 for 22 from the foul line, and it was like – Unlike when you watch the finals when LeBron is going to the basket and the Warriors go to the basket, if the Warriors are missing threes, if Cleveland is missing threes, they drive to the basket. The Rockets were just shooting three after three after three, and when they didn't fall, they lost. 
So it was, it was not a fun way to watch a game. Just And the fans, every time they missed the three, the fans were groaning more and more. <laughs> and then the Warriors came back, and Curry hits his three, and Durant hits his three. And it was just, it was, it was, uh, it was very, it was, it was a weird game because it was that one point in the third quarter where just everything just switched at, at, at one point. It was an interesting series, and I didn't see Houston having that much fight. Uh, Sean LeGregor is here with us as well. Sean, what's your takeaways from maybe not just that series, Game 7, everything the way it came together just didn't seem like Houston was maybe there and ready to play with them. No, well, I, I think losing Chris Paul obviously hurt. You know, you're getting 41 minutes out of Ariza, and as I, I, Ira brought up, I mean, he's 0 for 12 from the field in 41 minutes. Uh, he's 0 for 9 from 3. You get 2 of 12 from Gordon, 2 of 13 from Harden. Uh, and, and if you look at the quote that Steve Kerr said, you know, we were lucky to escape out of here. At the end of the day, they still only won by 9 points. Um, so losing Chris Paul those last two games, I know a lot went into Iguodala being out, but, you know, you're still trying out three all-stars potential hall of famers and the reigning defensive player uh, uh, of the league in Draymond Green and then you're taking Chris Paul off the court who you know is the leader of that team even though it's Harden's team and Harden's the best player on that team you know Chris Paul really carried him uh, uh, to that game five win and, and get him back in it but you know at, at the end of the day you look at it champions played like champions and and the team trying to take them down you know really you know um you know uh, crap the bed at, at that point you know when you look at the numbers so um houston's there i, I think if chris paul plays i i maybe it doesn't even go to seven but um you know at the end of the day i, I think we learn more about where golden state is in terms of finishing out, doing what they're supposed to do, um, and 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 really, you know, showing up game seven where they had that two minute stretch where I think they they evap- uh, evaporated eleven point lead, um, you know, where where Curry comes out hits a three, uh, Durant hits that three, so um, just shows you know why they're the champions, why they're the team to beat. Ira, and that's one of the things I was going to ask you. I mean, had Chris Paul played down the stretch, you think Houston had what it take to win that series? I think Golden State. I no, because I just think the way they play. I really think this shoot. Like I, I, I just don't think that's the winning strategy. You just cannot fire up forty-five, fifty-threes a game. Um, I thought that Golden State finally. I think they toyed with them. They finally got them, but they almost did. I mean, the Golden State's problem and their problem, even in the finals in that first game, is that they seem to just to be so lackadaisical at points in, ga- in the game, and then they let these other teams get the lead, or they blow a lead, or whatever. But I think you know everybody in the Rockets, with all the fans. The word you heard leaving the stadium was if. They all said, if Chris Paul was in there, if Chris Paul. That's all you heard. So the Rocket fans are like, oh, next year, when we have Harden, when we have Paul, when we have Chris, when we have Capella back, and we have Gordon, we're going to be amazing. So they're con- the Rocket fans were upset about the loss, but they're really hopeful for the for next year. Um, but the word you heard was if, IF. <laughs> That's what they said. Yeah, and I, and I think, I think, you know, in terms of the strategy that I brought up, that was the difference between a Chris Paul led team and then a, a minus a Chris Paul team is them putting up all those threes. Now I know they sh- you know led the league in history and most three pointers, um, you know, and that's not a, a way to go beat a team. But yet again, those weren't dropping. I mean, those had dropped, um, you know, pretty much all year for them. But the one thing that I saw Chris Paul in this series was he was so relentless attacking the basket. And when you watch Game Seven, especially when Golden State started coming back to evaporate that lead that they built up, uh, you know, in the first half, especially in that third quarter, it was just back to hero ball. It was pass it, shoot it, and miss. And I mean, there was a stretch where 
I mean, a few minutes went by, and it was like the Rockets, every time they came down, rush a shot, and Golden State would get the rebound, come down and score. And, I mean, it was just so demoralizing to even watch them because it was like you knew they were just putting up prayers. You knew that every time they took a shot, there was no chance of it going in. So I think if Chris Paul plays, the the way they're playing, the brand of basketball that they're playing, just changes because of the leadership where he could kind of come in and say, hey, guys, calm down, take good, clean looks, slow the pace down, where he's more of that floor general than James Harden is. James Harden is that you know quick catch, ISO, put a little shimmy on, and shoot where Chris Paul's more strategic in his approach at attacking the basket. So I, I think it's definitely a different game. I think, if, like I said, I think if Chris Paul didn't um, get hurt, you know, I think they probably closed out in six because of such the big win in game five. Ira, what do you think? Um, I, I, I think it would have been, I think, I, look, Chris Paul, what Sean said is correct. Chris Paul is the one guy on the team that wants to hit two-point shots. When you watch the Warriors, when Curry in game one was not hitting his threes, watch how he drives to the basket. Uh, watch Livingston, also Livingston in terms of he never shoots threes, he gets the twos. You have to take points somehow, and you have to stop the drive. So I think that that was the key. I think that Chris Paul would have made, of course, made a huge difference in that. And, uh, but I still think Golden State would have won, but it would have definitely been a, a classic game seven down to the wire finish. 7.35, Ira on Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Time to bring in good friend here of Ira on Sports. It's Coach Bob Patton, two-time World Basketball League champion. He coached the likes of Terry Rozier. He knows what he's talking about. Coach Patton, thank you so much for joining us. We always have a great talk with you. You just caught us in the middle of NBA talk. What do you think of this NBA final so far? Well, the more you watch Golden State, the more you have to understand if you're a basketball fan is they're just they're tremendous at doing certain things. First of all, I think they have great passers. I learned from coaches that were far far greater than I've ever been. Told me if you have great passers that understand the game, I mean, great catch a good pass, they really understand the game. And they, they have you ever seen a team that that just that they're spacing on the floor? If you know anything about basketball. It's important to have great spacing on the floor. Their spacing, you can see the only other team I can remember in the last 10 years that had that kind of spacing when they play is San Antonio, and I think he was a player at San Antonio. He must have picked some of that up. But what's been disappointing to me more than anything is Cleveland's defense. You know, there's some certain things uh, uh, that I think you have to do defensively. Number one, stop the ball. Number two, give early help. Three, you've got to block out. You got to get back defensively, and how you're going to play the screen and roll. You have to determine how you're going to do that. Before I, I counted over 30 points that Golden State had on just easy baskets. Mm-hmm. See, that's where it starts at. When you're getting those kind of easy baskets, and, and that's the more then you know they're going to make shots. So now where they're getting easy baskets and they're making shots, I don't think you have much of a chance to win the game. Excellent point, Coach, and that's what, you know, you're breaking it down from the fundamentals of it, which I think maybe some people are not thinking about it that direction. Well, Golden State's going to hit shots. Well, you have to try to do things to prevent them from having shots. Ira, what do you have for Coach Patton? I'm sorry, what was that? I guess Coach was. No, oh. I would, Coach, I would, it's Ira here. Thanks thanks a lot for coming on the show. I'm, I'm here trying to uh, – I'll be in Cleveland on Wednesday night, so I'm in Los Angeles now, and uh, I'll be, I was at the game, of course, on, uh, on Sunday. But I guess one of the questions I have would be um, for Cleveland, Rodney Hood. Uh, he averaged 17 points a game in Utah, two and a half threes a game, uh, two and a half threes. 
you know, he's sort of in the doghouse in Cleveland, but he seems to be a type of player that, and he's seen absolutely no action but the final minutes of game two. I mean, do you think Tyrone Lue's going to turn to Hood, or is he just going to be buried at the end of the bench for the rest of the series? You know, me being around uh, uh, coaches that, you know, those five years I was with their World Basketball League and, and watching them over the last, you know, ten years, when guys get in their doghouse, it's <laughs> – it's strange how they just they won't they won't take them out. It's almost like they they keep punishing them. I think when you do that, you know you you punish yourself, you punish your team. Uh, I agree with you. They they need to get another someone else that can shoot the basketball. You know you look at their, you know if you were choosing up a team, you know I said you have first pick, I have second pick. You know like you did when you were on the playground. Well, you know everyone would take LeBron. And these are all ten guys up. Then my next pick would probably be you know uh, Stephen Curry. Then you would probably take Durant. Then I would probably take three or four more guys from the Golden State. There's there's not anybody. Maybe Kevin Love would be the you know the seventh, sixth, or seventh pick. So when you have that kind of discrepancy with your team, you, you have to have other people that can you know, can help you. Either you know some way, either great defensive uh, player presence out there, or someone that can really shoot the basketball. And that's what I would do. I would get more offense out, and you know. In the game, and, and some of the guys have not come through. J.R. Smith hasn't. He's he's been terrible. Uh, I think one of the other guys um, they played last night. I think I was reading he was one for nine. One of the other guys was yeah. two for seven. You can't have that and expect to have any chance of winning. Not in the finals. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, I'm like, Coach, um, in the first game, it seemed like LeBron would. This is my opinion of what happened. LeBron would dribble, 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 dribble. And then he would have Durant on him, and then he'd say, "You know, I prefer that uh, Kevon Looney play me instead." So he'd run a, they would run a play, a pick play, but it wasn't even an aggressive pick. It sort of just says, "Looney, you come over here and guard me." And then Looney is too slow and not tall enough, or doesn't jump high enough to distract uh, LeBron. So he drove so many times to the basket, it then let him shoot threes, and he scores 51 points. It seemed like the second game, the Golden State saying, "Wait, we're not switching. Durant's going to stay on him, and then or Draymond Green stays on him, and Looney played like." 10 minutes in the game. It was only so Durant agreed. And then LeBron seems to have trouble when he drives to the basket of shooting over the length of Durant. And then Javal McGee was on him a couple times too. But it seems like that's how you stop LeBron is that when he drives to have someone guard him that actually has the length so he doesn't have that easy layup basket all the time. Is that, is that what oh, you saw? Absolutely. And the other thing they did last night too is if you notice they double teamed him out front very quickly and yeah. when he did go by people he kicked the ball. He he plays the game the right way. He threw the ball to the open guys. They just couldn't make any shots. They're, 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 they were saying, I, I know their, their plan will probably be the same plan coming Wednesday. We're going to say, okay, LeBron, we're not going to let you get to the bucket. We're going to let you kick it out, and you can kick it out to, you know, Jay on Smith, Rodney, who's ever out there, Kevin Love. <laughs> we'll take our chances with everybody else. You're not getting easy buckets. That's a pretty good game plan because they really don't have anybody else I, I hope it'll be better at home. You know, I always said this. Everybody's always – there's no bad teams at home, no matter who you're playing. So I think a home – you know, being home will really help them. Coach, okay, and now, now back, to the, 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 back to the topic that everybody's been talking about. In, in terms of the – on game one, on the block charge foul, so. when Durant uh, drove down the lane with 50 seconds to go, and they originally called it a charge – and then they went to the monitors and then decided it was a block foul on LeBron, and then Durant hit two free throws. What did you think about that whole series, uh, and did you think of, you know, um, what did you think of, of the final call of that? I, 
I was a referee before I became a coach uh, uh, for seven years, and I got to be a pretty good referee. One of the things that I learned from guys that were refereeing a long time before me was when you make a call, sell it. That's number one. And then after you make that call, stick with it. So they, they, they first called a charge. They went back to see if he was outside the, the lane in there, you know, inside that, that little circle lane. If you're inside that, then it's automatic. Uh, it's an automatic block. But he was outside that. That's what they said they were going to review. Well, once they reviewed that, they said, well, geez, now they have another rule saying, well, geez, maybe he turned his shoulder a little bit. So that really that hurt the Cavaliers as much as J.R. Smith's uh, blunder about doing that thing, and I agree 100. percent I think that that was a, a big, big thing of the game. You don't you don't go back and change the, the ruling of a chart once you made the call, and then let the monitors change that. You you might as well go back and look at 20 other things. LeBron got hit in the face at least twice. Um, they showed in the clip. I don't know if you've seen that all week long, where Damon Green stepped into the lane early. You should have called that and let Rondy. I mean, um, um, who was the guy that was shooting the foul shots? Um, Oh, jeez. He he would have had another foul shot attempt. So, you know, those things, all those things hurt the Cavaliers. They didn't get one single break going down the stretch, not one. And then I guess the next next question would be on the the George Hill miss with nine seconds, eight seconds to go in the game. I mean, you probably have had so many uh, places in your, in your, in terms of the, uh, uh, when you're bringing the team together and right before you come out of a timeout and you tell them how many timeouts there are, what's the score, how did that happen? How in the world did J.R. Smith not know what the score of the game was when he makes $16 million a, a year? That's a, what I always did, I always put my point guard right in front of me. I put my two wings and I put everybody, all five guys, and the, I, I would go through every single scenario like you said. For example, uh, you know, when that time, let's say, look it. We're down one if he makes the first foul shot. We'll tie up. If he makes the second one, we're up by one. If he misses the second one, remember, if we get the rebound, we can call a tie. I, went, I go through all those scenarios. And then I'll, before I even go, because these came out in, in uh, professional basketball, you know, in high school, they were like 35, 40 seconds. In NBA basketball, I remember when I first started coaching professional league, I'd be through this stuff, and they'd say, well, coach, you got another two minutes. They have about three minutes with the TV timeouts and everything, so you can go through every single possible scenario. For a, for a player at his statute, not to know what that was was absolutely I mean, I've seen some things in my career, but that was that was awful. And what I think happened, you know, the only thing I would have done different is in that timeout when they came to the bench, I would have looked at all the players and I would have said, you, th- you think that for this, the start of this game we would be happy to be going overtime against this team right now? So we're in overtime. Let's, but I don't think he said any of that. And you could just see by they've been showing all of the all the clips on TV how discouraged LeBron and everybody was on the bench. That's really hard to go back out and play when when that when after I seen that there there was no way they were going to win that game. Yeah, I mean I watched it. that video has been. I mean they had, that's from I think it was the Golden State Warriors TV or I don't know how they got that video, but it shows. And then you could heard LeBron asking, "Did we have a timeout left?" When he clearly knew they had a timeout, he was just looking to embarrass. J.R. Smith, and when Lou said yes, and then he puts his hands in his head and demonstrative, but it was, it was weird. If it was a high school basketball game, and I've seen kids make mistakes, but there was no like, okay, let's get it back in. There was, that was the most defeatist 
uh, timeout I've ever seen before the overtime, and uh, that was whatever. But, um, I'm, Sean, do you have any questions to ask, Coach? No, well, I, I think it goes into that, you know, especially bringing that up, is talking about, as a coach, what do you tell your team after a loss like that? Where, where there's, you know, you could point fingers all you want. The refs seem against you. You having people making mental mistakes, whether it's from the coach or, or for one of your, you know, supposed star players. You know, wh- how do you go in and, 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 and change the mindset of being absolutely demoralized from a loss like that? Well, that's, that is the, that's a million-dollar question. I wish all coaches <laughs> had that answer. But what I always did was I always try to bring up all the positives we did in that game. You know, I would say if we knew we were going to come out here and we were going to be in an overtime game in the first game against this team and then play so well in the second game, that game wasn't even a, was, was a close game. I think it was a six- or seven-point game before our, um, Steve Curry made those, three, those couple outside shots that he made. So you've got to tell them we could play with this team if we could do a couple things better. And what I would harp on is let's get better defensively. I mean, that's something, you know, shooting is, is subjective every single time you go out and play. I've had, geez, I've had great players. One night they shoot the lights out, the next night they can't hit. But defense is constant. So I would do a better job of doing those things I said earlier. They need to stop the ball quicker, give early help. I, you, I don't know if you notice some of the clips in the games, how late their help is when guys are driving down the lane. Yeah. That, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, I've seen... I mean, that was one of the things, again, that maybe they're not working that hard or they haven't worked that hard in the practice sessions doing that, but that's something that has to be done. You look at Golden State, San Antonio, Miami, uh, the teams that were really good over the past, you know, seven, ten years, and they do a great job of rotating. Yeah. The Cleveland doesn't. And then the getting back defensively. They got to get back, and then how are you going to play the screen and roll? You either going to double team it, or you're going to switch. You got to do something. One time they switch it, one time they don't know. See, there's, there's, you can see there's all kind of confusion there. They can straighten that out in two days a little bit if they watch some film. I hope they do that because, you know, um, I, like I said, I think coming home will really help them. But they have to win this game three. Uh, they have to win this. He is Coach Bob Patton, uh, former two-time World Basketball League champion. Coach likes of Terry Rozier. We love having him here on Ira on Sports, and we want to thank you so much for stopping by. We can't wait to catch up after this is over. We can really get your recap. Thanks, Coach. Yeah, okay, thanks. Hey, uh, Ira, you are definitely, you know that song Ricky Nelson made, Traveling Man? <laughs> yeah, that's you. And I, I put down Traveling Man, seen a lot of games all over this land. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Coach. Hey, thanks for having me on. This is why we love Coach Bob Patton. Eh, fun stuff like that. You are Ricky Nelson's traveling man. I read <laughs> 749, Ira on sports. You know, before we move into this series a little more, we're going to go way over on this show. Um, Ira, is J.R. Smith's mix-up the worst in pro sports playoff history? There's a lot I can think of. I don't know if any are as bad as this. What do you think, I? I, you know what? I'm a counterculture to this mix-up. I, I feel on that play there were two, there were two worst mistakes. Actually, as bad as J.R. Smith was, George Hill has got to make that foul shot. He's an 80% foul shot shooter. He makes $20 million a year, and this, it's, this, it's not a shot. You know, like in high school basketball, junior high school basketball, that's how you shoot foul shots. It's the same distance at, at all levels. And in the pro game, there's no one blocking the shot. He has got to make that shot. And it was one of the worst mistakes. And he's so lucky that J.R. Smith did forgot the timeout because it, got, it took the heat off uh, George Hill for missing the shot. Yeah. That's one. Two, 
Kevin Durant, how he led J.R. Smith, one of the cardinal sins of basketball, like one of the top sin of all sins, is on a free throw, you do not let someone get inside and get that rebound. How Kevin Durant let J.R. Smith come in and even get the rebound is inexcusable. It's horrendous. Durant was not paying attention. He wasn't thinking. That was stupid on his part. But then, then you get J.R. Smith. So J.R. Smith then, but he makes the play that now everybody's talking about because he clearly didn't know that what the score was and he's dribbling the ball all around <laughs> and the memes are hilarious. Yeah, to see, but I, I, so I, I think that people will talk about this play, like Chris Weber's timeout when he was in Michigan. They talk about that forever, and they once said Chris Weber is thankful for J.R. Smith because now it stops him being the person when people say, if you don't forget what's in the game, because I guarantee you that every little high school, junior high school, bitty league game, the coach is going to say, don't be like J.R. Smith. You've got to remember the score. <laughs> well, they were saying that before that play, but, uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I do. I, I, I think this is up there. I mean, it's it's Bill Buckner's ground ball. It's Chris Webber's timeout. It's Pete Carroll calling a pass instead of a run in the Super Bowl. It's I'm going to throw some shade on myself. It's Tony Romo fumbling the snap on a on a uh, field goal. What about Leon Lett? Yeah, I mean, but well, that wasn't a playoff game. This play, <laughs> it's and it's not, it's not just going to stick to Jr. and it's going to stick to James and it's going to stick to this series. And I honestly, I think it'll even stick to Golden State's legacy. I mean, it'll be. If JR shoots that ball, they call a timeout. Cleveland wins game one. They stuck it in a game two. They're going back tied 1-1. I mean, this has tainted this series in terms of Cleveland should have won game one. Now they're demoralized by the way they lost. And, you know, LeBron's definitely leaving uh, because J.R. Smith, you know, made one of the most boneheaded plays in, in sports history memory. So um, I, I do. I think, it, I think it taints pretty much everything. And, and there was my favorite meme was J.R. Smith just proved he'll be a Nick forever. And I just thought that, <laughs> that's so funny. That was the funniest one because that hits, that hits home for me too. But, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely up there with uh, the worst of all time. Irie, we're right about the memes because the internet comes up with some amazingly uh, funny and stuff. Instantly, it wasn't like I mean, it was like before the six seconds ran off. It was like bam, 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 bam. I mean, they just hit it hard. So that was the first thing I did after it happened. I went, I just typed in J.R. Smith just to see all the Twitter rants. Wasn't Leon Lett and Don Beebe in the Super Bowl though? No, I, that was um because the the Leon Lett. Was Don I, Beebe I, coming up behind him and stripping okay, out of the yeah, back? Yeah, end well, zone. I, yeah. Well, I thought, yeah, no, I, I well, I was going back. There's a to lot the, of Leon Lett the, issues. Well, yeah, exactly. There's a Leon Lett against the Dolphins on Thanksgiving in the snow. I thought that's what <laughs> we were talking about. I forgot the Don Beebe. Um, one thing, and it's not a playoff game, but this is probably the most bizarre basketball thing I've seen in the last 15 years. And you guys will both remember this. Michael Ruffin of the Wizards thinks that the clock is going to expire and throws the ball in the air versus Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> And Mo Peterson comes up, catches the ball, and bangs a three to to tie the game and eventually win. That was probably my clincher up until J.R. Smith. 7.53, Ira on Sports, 95.9, True Oldies Channel. You know, Ira, you alluded to it before. Why, are the, why is there two different Kevin Durants? Yeah. Why do I see Kevin Durant that is just the most dominant player in the league, not named LeBron James, and then you see game one Kevin Durant, where this guy is just a, 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 a byproduct of the game. Iro, what do you think's going on? Well, I, that first game, I, I was more upset about his defense as I raised a call to Coach Batson. 
I just could not believe it. Someone I saw, I talked to someone who missed like three quarters of the game, and I just said all it was was LeBron dribble, 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 and then Looney, he gets Looney on him, and he just beat Looney every time. And I just, I could not believe why Durant just said, I want to stay on LeBron. I mean, when he was in Oklahoma City and they played in the finals, he was demanding LeBron. He wanted to play LeBron. And I don't know why he said, okay, that's okay, I'll let Looney play LeBron. And then on offense, he wasn't as aggressive as he, as he usually was. And he uh, and, and I just felt like, now, he shot well second game. The first game, he wasn't shooting well at all. And, but he can, it seemed like the second game, they ran. i got to give Steve Kerr credit, because if you notice in second game, game two, George, he, they were running plays so that George Hill was guarding Durant. George, uh, Durant has seven, eight inches over George Hill. He took him down, and these were like Papa shot. My friend, one friend called it Papa shot. He was just like five, six, seven feet from the basket making every shot. So I think Durant, I think you're going to see good Durant the rest of the series, but clearly that game one was not good Durant. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, there was a couple sound bites that came out of game one, and you hear Kerr, you know, he's telling them about the stories about Michael. And, and at the end of the day, I know Steph Curry, this is Steph Curry's team. Kevin Durant is the second best basketball player on the planet, you know, and, and LeBron's number one. So so we could talk about it, whose team it is. Kevin Durant is the best basketball player on Golden State. I mean, that's, that's hands down. Best scorer, too. He was pressing, you know, and, and Kerr said, hey, rely on your teammates. You don't have to go out and win this for us. So it kind of got out of that, you know, what Golden State does so well, what with, 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 um, with, with Coach Patton was talking about, the ball movement, the spacing. Kevin Durant really seemed like he was pressing. And if you look at the numbers, they're almost identical, okay? 26-9-6. Second game, 26-9-7. and seven. You're like, oh, wow, Kevin Durant's had two uh, good games. The difference is, is game one, he shot 38% from field. 72% for game two, right? And and putting more on defense, you know, going after LeBron, taking that challenge in game two, doing it on both sides of the court. Uh, that was something that I thought we saw, you know, uh, in, in the series last year as well, where he was taking that challenge on. But, you know, it really comes down to just him pressing and, and, and Kerr kind of talking him off the ledge saying, hey, man, look at who's around you. I mean, you got two great scorers that are sitting next to you. You got Draymond Green who can hit open shots. Stop thinking that you got to put this on your back where we kind of saw him have to do that throughout the playoffs because Curry was banged up, Clay was banged up. So now you're fully healthy, your team's back in order outside of Iguodala, but you know, he's not exactly an offensive threat. You know, trust and rely on those guys and make the right pass. Don't always feel like you got to play hero ball. And that was the biggest difference. And you could just see it, you know, like I said, from 72% uh, field goal shooting in, in game two to 38% in game one. So um, definitely the better looks at he took the smarter basketball play Kevin Durant has obviously uh, turned that corner and I think a lot of that goes to Steve Kerr mid-game you know pep talks so Ira you agree that uh, Durant that was uh, an aberration and that we're going to see KD steamroll the rest of this well, I want to tell the one other point is rebounding. That the difference between as Nita, we can have two games we compare about. But in the first game, the uh, war the Warriors were out rebounded fifty three to thirty eight, fifteen rebounds, wow. and the Cleveland had nineteen wow. offensive rebounds, and Crazy. Golden State only had four, including that one play where J.R. Smith took it from Durant. Well, Golden State is not playing with a center. Javal McGee plays a few minutes a game. Durant and Green they have to rebound like they, like they can't just look at someone else rebounding. You Chris. LeBron all you want, but you know LeBron gets a triple double every game. But one of the stats is the rebounding. He's averaging 13, 14 rebounds a game. So Durant, without a center, has got to get these rebounds. And you cannot allow uh, Cleveland. To, if you know if they want to just let Cleveland get all these offensive rebounds, they're going 
going to lose games. I mean, after game one, I said, if they're going to let Cleveland get 20 offensive rebounds a game, they're going to lose, they're going to lose this series. Now, actually, Cleveland, the next series, and the game two, had 16 offensive rebounds, but the rebounding totals evened out. So at least it was an even 43-43 or whatever for the, for the game. But uh, Durant has got to rebound, he's got to play good defense, and he's got to make a shot. That's a lot to ask him, but you're in the NBA Finals and you're playing LeBron James and you want to be the best player in the world? Well, you got to do all those things. So. Could not have said it better myself. 758, Iron Sports, 95.9, True Oldies Channel. Uh, it's, this is just in the uh, Detroit Tigers have taken Auburn right-handed pitcher Casey Mize, number one overall in the 2018 Major League Baseball Draft. Ira, let's talk about some adjustments. I happen to be kind of in the camp that this is over, and I never thought they really had a chance. You guys, and especially you, Ira, I know you're you know, a big Cavs fan, big LeBron guy. What adjustments can be made to get LeBron and the Cavs back in this series? Well, I think I like the, the Warriors' adjustment. The key adjustment to me was when Javal McGee started that game. He finished uh, with, with, with six for six shooting, but it's the, it's the first three or four plays of the game. They went to Javal McGee. He's seven feet tall. He's energetic. He dunks the ball. And I think that they needed that. Like, they needed to get Looney out of the game. Looney in this series is worthless. I like him. I said on the air <laughs> two, three weeks ago, I'm a big fan, but I... But Keep him on the bench because at least Bell, when Bell's in the game, he's the rookie out of Oregon for, uh, for Golden State. When they throw it to Bell and Bell's wide open for a 10-foot shot, Bell's smart enough to know is, I might be wide open, but Curry, who's 30 feet over there, I'll throw it to him. <laughs> and that's why he sets those picks and he dumps it back to Curry. So I, and, he, and he moves the ball. Looney doesn't pass the ball. He's not playing good defense. Get him out of the game. And I think Kerr, I'm mad that, you know, from a Golden State perspective, I'd be upset that he didn't get Looney out fast enough in game one, but in game two, at least he put him on the ice. But I have no idea why they don't play Rodney Hood. I think that's been a terrible, terrible mistake for uh, Cleveland. I don't, he, he's, as I said, this year he averaged 18 points a game. He can shoot three threes a game. J.R. Smith is a disaster. And don't tell me what a great defender J.R. Smith. Oh, I've been watching no, game. Curry right. went yeah. off on J.R. Smith <laughs> in game two. Yeah. No, I, I think I think two guys. You know, you look at you look at two guys that have didn't have big rotation numbers, but over in game one, I mean, I thought they're the energy guys. Jeff Green played thirty, I think, five minutes. You know, and gave them solid offense, solid defense. Larry Nance, I mean, when he's on the court, just the defensive effort. That is what Cleveland's missing. I mean, Coach Pat just brought it up. I mean, we have a we have a two-time world championship coach here. All right? And he's saying, what do they got to do? They got to they got to get in their their rotations on defense. They got to play better defense. Those two guys went from playing, I think, you know, uh Jeff Green had 35 minutes goes down to 19 uh into game 2. Larry Nance had 20 uh down to 12 uh in the second game and I and I understand maybe because in the third quarter the game got a little, you know, further out from them, um, so you had to you know keep your your better scores on the court. But at the end of the day, those two guys just provide a level of toughness, and and just when you watch Larry Nance on the court, the energy that he brings, I mean, that's what every player on the Cavs should be doing because they're realizing, especially Jeff Green, a guy who's come a long way, who who wasn't even supposed to be playing basketball, should have retired because he had the, the really bad health scare that he could have almost died. I mean, these guys are giving everything they have every minute they're on the court where other guys on that Cleveland Cavs team just seem like they're going through the motion. So I think those two guys in that rotation, in that six, seven-man rotation, have to get them on the court more just for this, the, the energy that they bring on the boards. Uh, you know, I reported to it in the first game. You know, how many offensive boards they got, uh, how they were crashing, and, and what the discrepancy, 20-plus uh, differential on, on rebounds. 
I mean, that's the game right there. If, if, if the end of the game doesn't happen the way it does, if that horrible call on LeBron doesn't happen, if, if J.R. Smith doesn't do the most bonehead thing, Cavs are tied 1-1 going back to Cleveland. So I think those two guys are instrumental to them making the adjustments, having them on the court as much as possible because the energy that those guys bring. 801, it's Iron Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. We're still going to touch on the French Open, boxing. Yankees and Mets kick off this uh, series this weekend. Plus, the NHL is as good as it's ever been with Washington, up 2-1. to one. Before we do that, though, Ira, this guy, LeBron, I know you love him. There's no chance he could stay in Cleveland after this, right? I mean, just looking through everything, you brought up the point that these guys aren't playing defense. Everyone seems to be kind of dejected to be on the best player on the world's team. That's not a team I'd want to play for. Ira, what's the chances you give uh, LeBron of coming back to Cleveland? Well, I'm going to answer it with also an interpretation, sort of. Like, about two and a half months ago when that trade went down, when Isaiah Thomas was traded and half the team was traded away, that they made all the moves and all the announcements were made. And the last announcement had nothing to do with all the other moves. It was Dwayne Wade is going back to Miami for a second-round draft pick. And everyone said, well, they told Dwayne that there was not going to be enough time for him in Cleveland because they brought all these other players so he would, not, he would be uncomfortable and J.R. Smith has his role and all this other stuff. Well, considering that J- Dwayne Wade in Game 2 against Philadelphia scored 28 points on 11-16 shooting, 7 rebounds, 3 assists, and 2 steals, if Dwayne Wade was in that game against Game 7 against Boston and also in Game 1, do you think Dwayne Wade knows what the score is? Do you think Dwayne Wade could tell LeBron, sit on the bench for five minutes, take a break, I'll take this over for the next five minutes? And what about defensively what Dwayne Wade would be able to play on Curry and Thompson and be able to stop them? I think that traded Dwayne Wade was totally idiotic. I think it was stupid. I don't know if LeBron, there was so much going on. I don't, know if, I don't think LeBron was, you know, it's sort of like one of those side trades where it's like they told Dwayne, you're, gonna be, uh, you're not going to like your role, so you might, might as well just go somewhere else. But I think they desperately needed Dwayne Wade. They desperately need another player. Um, I'm not ready to predict where LeBron's going to go. I want to see how the series uh, ends up. But I feel like I want to get back to that to that Wade trade. I, I think that was did not have someone like that to, uh, in the room uh, to make that. I thought that was a key miss. I mean, well, Golden State has missed Iguodala a lot the first two games. And that's one of the, you know, that he's been, he might come back for game three. Because when I was at the Golden State game uh, and two, he, was, he didn't warm up, but he ran out and people thought he was going to play. And then he ran back to the locker room. He looked like he was running with no limp. So he's going to be part of that game and he's going to be another addition to Golden State. But I think that, you know, I think when LeBron looks around and looks at J.R. Smith and looks at everybody missing his shots, I think he would have loved to see Dwayne Wade on that floor. Someone who can make big plays, make big shots who's done those things and will not let the pressure get to them. No, you you are totally on point. There's nobody else on this team I would trust with the ball besides oh, LeBron James at this point. Sean, chances LeBron stays. If they win, 100. If they lose, 0.00000000001. You know, I talked to you before the show, Mike. Has there ever been a player in sports that's been let down by an organization more than LeBron? No. I mean, he's literally never had a team in Cleveland ever. Like, name the best player that he's played with. Like Kyrie, right? Anderson I mean, but, but that was very, you know, <laughs> even the early years. Then he comes and he gets Kyrie and they're like, oh, let's send the second best player. That's pretty, I don't want to say he's, he's LeBron's equal. I mean, but he's an all-star, all-pro player. Let's just get rid of him. I mean, Kevin Love is not the Kevin Love that was in Minnesota. Or maybe he is, but now he's not in Minnesota. He's, you know, he's playing against real competition. He's not the go-to guy. So the numbers are down. 
But I mean, just it, it just has there ever been an, a wasted opportunity more than this guy? How are every other team building these, you know, three to four star players, and Cleveland can't figure it out? I mean, they just can't do it. And you're getting you're attracting Kevin Durant to to Golden State. You know, is it because Cleveland's such a bad city or something? I mean, like Joe Kim Noah said it. No, I've never heard anybody say they're going on vacation in Cleveland. But at the end of the day, I mean, they it was an embarrassment. Danny Ainge robbed the Cleveland Cavaliers in that Kyrie Irving trade. What are they getting? That's I think it's I think they have the seventh or eighth pick yeah. based off of that for Kyrie Irving and you know Isaiah Thomas with one hip. I mean, it's just this often. Uh, the, the general manners is the president, you know, uh, Dan Gilbert. They've just let LeBron James down, and we're seeing greatness wasted. And the only person that I can remember in, in, in modern sports history where there was just talent, a, a gr- one of the best ever talents wasted was Peyton Manning with the Colts. Yeah, they got one Super Bowl. I think they, they went to one other one, but still, all those years, and they Beat just couldn't the get over the hump. Yeah. I mean, you know, so it just seems it's like we're wasting the best LeBron James. He goes for 51, what? Uh, eight and eight in game one and they lose. I mean, it's just, it's really disheartening. It's really sad because we're watching one of the best ever being let down by his organization. You know who, you, and he deserves it, to go someplace son, else. Son, son, son um, I would say Dan Marino. At the I was going to say yeah, Marino. Dan, Ira. Yeah, there you go. Throw him in. Sorry. <laughs> what else? And also, and, and also, um, I, as much as I think, I think LeBron, though, a part of this is he's made his own bed. I mean, he wanted them to give the contracts to J.R. Smith and Tristan Thompson that then that hamstrung them, and he's also the one who couldn't get along. Now, I, I blame more Kyrie than LeBron on this. Oh, yeah. He's also the one that could not somehow keep Kyrie there. So as much as his organization has let him down, LeBron has himself, by pushing the Thompson contracts and the J.R. Smith contract and then pushing Kyrie out, he's really you know, made it difficult on the organization to put him. But you're right. It would be amazing if he tried to put it surrounding himself with the right stars yeah. and you're trying to envision what players around LeBron would you could take down this Golden State team is it everyone says the greatest team. that this team is beatable they're beatable oh, yeah. and go, Houston took them to seven games mm-hmm. so I think you're right your comment is right is that LeBron is looking at the landscape and saying what can I surround myself to beat this Golden State team yeah Ira, before we wrap this up, I wanted to get into hockey immediately, but this is interesting. You're really fired up about this. Where's his landing spot? I don't think there's that good of a landing spot for LeBron. There's no place he's going to go in. Listen, two-thirds of the league has more talent than Cleveland. That's not that's not debatable. Where can he go to immediately challenge Golden State? Um, I, look, I think when people are looking at this, they're looking at it a little bit different. I, I think that it's, you have to look at what the team could be. Uh, the Lakers have the cap room. They have they have a way to work it. You could bring certain players. There. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be some team where it's not gonna be gonna go and to like the Sixers. You add it's gonna be somewhere where a lot of other players are gonna come together, like what he did in Miami yeah. with Wade and Bosch. But I want to add just one forty script from basketball. I want to add one more point about this series. In two thousand twelve. When Oklahoma City had Russell Westbrook, James Harden, and Kevin Durant, and I think this is one of the greatest NBA Finals ever because you had uh, LeBron, Wade, and this was LeBron's first title, too, and Bosch, yeah. and then they lost game one. Oklahoma City was up one nothing, and they were in the second game was one of the best basketball games I've ever seen. And Durant, they were down two points with like five seconds to go, and Durant drove to the basket, and LeBron fouled him. I thought it was a clear foul, but the refs never called the foul. And Oklahoma City ended up losing that game, and then they went back to Miami and lost three. And that was that. They'll say, oh, well, Oklahoma City will be back, Miami will be back. But people said, well, wait. 
Durant will get that call years from now. So I think that was a call Durant got back from 2012. Six years later, Durant got the block charge callback. <laughs> Guys, let's get into I love the way you think, very analytically. <laughs> and this is why I want this uh, in our hockey section now. By the way, they just tipped off in Washington. Washington does lead this series 2-1 to one over the Vegas Golden Knights. This is going to be uh, an amazing series. 809, Iron Sports, 95.9, True Oldies Channel, Mike and Sean here as well. Um, Sean, we can start with you. This series, and this is why I love hockey, you're going to have people typically come out of the woodworks, fourth-line guys, third-line guys. It's been a story for Washington of Ovechkin and Holpe, yeah. and Holpe really, really just devastated people in the Eastern Conference Finals and the entire run. Who do you think is the more outstanding player so far, though, through three games of the Stanley Cup? Well, I do want to tell you. I mean, Holpe must listen to the show because I called him out. I mean, you said, <laughs> what do they need to do to come back and beat Tampa? And I said, he's got to step up. And guess what? I mean, those last two games, you know, uh, played unbelievable. But I, I, you got to go with Vetchkin. Leading the playoffs, 14 goals, 25 points in 22 games. He's the heart and soul of that team. Um, and he's two games away from cementing his, you know, his place amongst the hockey gods. I mean, he's one of the best that we've ever seen, uh, especially of his era. It's you know, it's him and Crosby always going back and forth. You know, it's a lot of other guys out there, great hockey players, but nobody I mean, on their level. But, but that's what I mean. Ovechkin has just done it for you know a decade plus, putting up fifty goal um, uh, uh, seasons. You know, uh, one after another. So just to see him get his time, to see the way that even you know, I, I, obviously, I think Washington's the better team especially on paper, um, especially on the, the those top six uh, guys. Um, but he's just elevating that. I mean, it's, 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 it's when you see that guy that's, you know, the older guy and everybody kind of rallies around him. This team is rallying around Ovi, um, and he's really turned into that true leader uh, instead of just kind of the, you know, the headache. I mean, that's, I feel like, what his his shtick was uh, kind of throughout his career. Okay, yeah, he's a great player, but doesn't make anybody better. Kind of, you know, pouts and selfish stuff like that. Selfish player. A selfish player, exactly. That's the word I was looking for. Very selfish. Now it just seems like he's the heart and soul. He's the backbone, and those guys are going to war for him. So I think it's Ovi. Ira, I know that, um, you know, Sean and I's enthusiasm for hockey has really got you fully on board now. <laughs> and and you're, into, you're into the Stanley Cup playoffs and finals, um, you know, more than anybody we know. What do you think, Ovechkin or Holtby? Who do you take as your MVP of the series so far? Um, well, Hokey on that one save. I mean, they call him oh God, tremendous. But I, I, I felt that. I mean, he was he was completely out of the goal, and then he and then he jumps back in, and and, and I it was I watched I saw the play ten times, and I still can't believe that he made that save. Anybody Google Hokey save, you'll be just you'll watch it ten times because you're like, there's no way a human being could catch. It was out of like a superhero movie. It wasn't like a normal person could react that quickly to make that play. Um, but I think one of the keys of the series is that flurry for Vegas. He has been, and I'm going to use the basketball analogy with LeBron. If, does anyone think that if LeBron came out in game three and shot one for 15 and had a <laughs> terrible game, that somehow the rest of the Cavs are going to say, LeBron's playing bad, we're going to have to pick it up and play so great and they're going to win. I think that when Flurry plays bad, and see, he's played so well this entire playoffs, and when he's gave up four goals, and they're not soft goals, and they're not whatever, but it's like he's not superhuman anymore. I think that Vegas now is pressing. They're like, oh my gosh, we don't have this backstop. We're not, the score's not going to be, we're not going to give up one goal or two goals. We now have to score four and five goals, and they're almost trying to score two goals with one shot, and they're putting more pressure on themselves. And I think Flory, you know, struggling, not, I wouldn't use the word struggling, but not playing at the, you know, the most amazing uh, goal 
goaltending you possibly could imagine. It's putting more pressure on the team. But for the MVP, I would say Ovechkin because he's certainly the leader. It's everyone rallies around him, and it seems like every game he's getting out to that first goal, the first shot. It, he's just he is totally locked in, and he wants to get his first title. You know, Ira, you bring up a good point. Ovechkin's the first one to be the first shift of every game should be must-watch TV because oh Alex Ovechkin is going for it. He's <laughs> And he's actually making people better for the first time in, in his career. He's always been a selfish player, and he's been kind of shifting the model to, okay, I'll back check. Okay, I will lay my body out there to block shots. Oh, he was yeah. never that guy. He never had to. Most outstanding player so far, Barry Trotz, coach of Washington, because he's clearly out-coaching everyone in Vegas. They, they have no idea how to deal with his adjustments. Uh, he led Nashville to the playoffs uh, 11 times in his first 13 years as an expansion team. This guy knows what he's doing. Now he's got real talent. Uh, I'm ridiculously impressed. Sean, here's a weird question. Has Vegas shifted the model of how other GMs are going to work? They're showing you that they can make the Stanley Cup Finals without a superstar. You need a goalie. You always need a goalie. There's no superstar on this team. They're in the finals. What do you think? It's kind of like Billy Bean uh, Moneyball, you know, the, the really way they is. went, the, the way they went about it. You know, and obviously it, it's, it was built through the expansion draft, so it's not like every GM has the ability to build just like this. I mean, so we have to kind of make that distinction. But however, they went out and built a team that's deep and definitely, you know, they're not particularly top heavy. You said there's not a clear cut bona fide superstar. You know, you always I would hear, rotate their power play every night. Exactly. Based off who's and, and you always hear about a team's top six, the top six who's in the top six. All right. You know, we brought this kid up. He's in the top six. I mean, this team is four lines deep, you know, which means they can skate for days. I mean, they throw wave after wave of fresh legs at you, and it's hard to compete, especially in a in a sport that's as violent and as physically tolling as hockey is. So, so to have four solid lines where teams are really only worried about, you know, what's their top player player unit and their first three lines. I mean, they're coming four deep at you and just, you know, uh, skating you out of the rink. So um, definitely, like I said, it kind of is that... that uh, um, money ball type and and when you looked at the expansion draft there were some players out there that you're like wow this guy's up for grabs and they didn't take him they didn't take the obvious guys because of the way the cap worked and all that stuff they went out they got the premier goalie uh but they built with just you know uh the the thought of hey we want to be able to outskate you guys we want to have fresh legs uh you know coming out that four uh uh, lines deep um and and look man you know who thought they'd be playing you know especially and only down 2-1 to washington in the stanley cup final i mean it's unbelievable we'll talk more about that in one one second because I don't think Vegas is out of this series. No. Ira, though, you're the, the you know, you're a great um, person to ask this question to because your team, the Penguins, are the exact opposite of this. You got arguably the two best players, you got two of the top five players on the same team, and you have the best player in the league is one of those two. They get really thin in the third and fourth line. They won the Stanley Cup last time with the HBK line. The fourth line was uh, um, Hagelin, Benino, and Kessel. Kessel. They won the series. They won the Stanley Cup with their third line. Ira, do you think that this is going to change how Vegas or Vegas is going to change how GMs look at drafting teams? Well, I think it's interesting that the GM of the of the Knights was also the GM of the Capitals. So he drafted fourteen of the Capital players, and now he's he put together this. I mean, I, I think I sent a text to you. Um, I wonder is he the smartest GM in, in business in terms of being able to select two teams? It reminds me of when John Gruden coached the Raiders, and then he went to the Buccaneers, and then they the, the Buccaneers beat the Raiders in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think I think it, in terms of it, the goalie is of course 
the key. And I think if you have the teamwork that Vegas has, but boy, if Washington wins, it does show that that one superstar might really help to push you over the top. So I think it, I don't think it's the, it, it changes the playbook, but it certainly is. It also, I'll say this. The incitement for, if you look at the ticket prices for Vegas, I have never, it's higher than the NBA Finals. The, uh, it, it's, it's more than Golden State and more than Cleveland to go to a game. And I think if it goes to game five or seven, you're going to be looking at like a $2,500 and $3,000 get in worst ticket in the house. Because I have never seen, I go on stuff, I'm not going to any of the games, the hockey games, but I'm looking at the pricing and I have never seen pricing like that for any basketball game ever. And Mike, I just want to bring up one point too, because when you talk about that fourth line, right? You know, and you're saying, is this the new model? Is this what other GMs are going to be doing? I think what it also speaks to, even though Vegas might be the first ones to do it, the talent level and the skill level of the players in the NHL right now. This is why me and you always preach. Everybody has to watch the NHL because right now it's that time where, I mean, there's never been more talent in the NHL than there is today. You know, there might be not the superstar names because, you know, other sports have grown and, you know, there's not the Gretzky's and the Messier's and the Augers and the Lemieux's, but at the end of the day, there are, you know, people just don't know them because, you know, the, the, the crowds aren't there, but the overall talent in the NHL right now is three, four lines deep. So, I mean, it, it, it's just, I think, the way that this is going to be going. They don't know them because they're 19 years old, shorter than me and from Finland. Exactly. Which is still <laughs> a lot of the league, but it's still exciting to watch 818 Iron Sports 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Ira, we got to wrap this up, but first and foremost, Serena Williams out of the French Open, and I got a little stat for you about Rafael Nadal. He's 83-2 and two, lifetime in the French Open. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, Nadal, not only this year, he's dominating. I mean, it's like when you watch his set scores, it's like 1-1-1. One, one, and one. and on, it, it, he's just playing lights out. And I like Del Poto still, still in yep. there. Uh, the American men did terrible. The Mar- only, uh, Isner and Johnson, only two Americans made it past the second round. Um, but, and then in the women's side, it'll be interesting. On the one side is Sloan Stevens and Madison Keys, two, you know, good young Americans are yep. still in it. And one of them is, they're going to play each other in the semis if they get through to that. And so one American could be in the, uh, in the semifinals. But I think it, everyone was looking forward to the, uh, Serena Sharapova, uh, quarterfinal because, they they have a, they have a it's just history they they actually don't get along and they and Serena was not uh, complimentary towards Sharapova's drug suspension and Serena then pulls out of the match that everybody and remember last year they didn't let Sharapova even play in the French Open yeah. as a wild card even though she'd been a defending uh, as a past champion but I think it'll be fun to watch on Sunday certainly uh, the the the, um, the women's finals on Saturday see what happens with the Americans and on Sunday if Nadal can claim another Grand Slam. Not only are we way out of time, we're way over time. <laughs> I want to thank everyone so much for stopping by. Mike E. of Verone, former owner of Big Brown, also Coach Bob Patton, two-time World Basketball League champion. They love popping by here. On behalf of Ira, Sean LaGrega, I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's talk next Monday night's Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel.